From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The military will shift its training focus back to large-scale warfighting exercises. Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness Matt Donovan says the exercises will be similar to the ones the department did during the Cold War. National Defense Magazine reports Donovan cites the National Defense Strategy's Great Power Competition as one reason for the shift. The Defense Information Systems Agency's latest cloud contract award will go for cloud-based browsing and downloading. The Cloud-Based Internet Isolation Award is worth about $200 million. Breaking Defense reports the award went to Menlo Security and Bylight. A changing of the guard is coming at the Defense Innovation Board. Founding Chair Eric Schmidt and other members cycled off the board this week as their four-year terms concluded. FedScoop reports the board's new chair is Mark Sarangelo of the University of Colorado at Boulder. The advent of the Space Force doesn't mean that all of the military's space operations will move. Some missile defense operations and other operations that live in the Army will stay there. Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler is commanding general of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. General, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the mission of your command, sir? Good morning, Francis. Thanks very much for, for having me on today. So Space and Missile Defense Command, we're a unique organization within the United States Army. As you said, we, uh, we have responsibility for providing space and missile defense forces to the Army as well as to the combatant commands. We have uh, forces in 11 different time zones, uh, 23 locations. We're a global force. I've got uh, three operational brigades that we're responsible for. We have the 100th uh, ground-based uh, mid-course defense brigade, which is the brigade that's responsible for our homeland missile defense. I have first space brigade, which provides uh, space capabilities to our combat command, specifically to newly established Space Command. And I also have a Satellite Operations Brigade, which provides satellite operations and communication support, again, to uh, Space Command. Uh, also within Space and Missile Defense Command, I have responsibility to do the organized train and equip missions for the Army. So I have a technical center, which does cutting edge research and development on things such as uh, directed energy, lasers, uh, hypersonics, and I have a, a center of excellence, which uh, helps us uh, determine the requirements and future warfighting capabilities for missile defense and for space, again, that we will provide to the Army as well as to the uh, geographic uh, combatant commanders that are out there. I note a number of times, General Karbler, in the materials about your command, the reference to space, uh, missile defense, and high-altitude capabilities. I think a lot of people understand what space and and missile defense capabilities are. Tell me more about what uh, high altitude capabilities are, sir. Sure, great question. High altitude capabilities, so if you think about uh, uh, balloons, uh, station keeping of, uh, of blimps, those high altitude capabilities that don't necessarily get into space, but are of such an altitude that they're able to provide us with uh, uh, surveillance capabilities, uh, uh, communications relays capabilities, uh, other things that help us not be so dependent on space, but are a little bit more tactically responsive to the ground uh, to the ground maneuver warfighters. 
Your uh, command incorporates active duty, reserve components, National Guard components. Tell me how you mix those together. That's been an issue that, uh, throughout the history of all three of those forces uh, to try to mix them together in, in a fluid way, sir. Yeah, I have some great commanders out there that, that just do a great job of uh, seamlessly integrating uh, our multi-component aspect of the command. So first within the 100th GMD, again, the, uh, the, the uh, soldiers who protect uh, the homeland from missile, uh, from any kind of missile attack, um, those are comprised of soldiers from the Colorado National Guard, the Alaska National Guard, and the California National Guard. And they're able to provide protection for North America 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. They never miss a beat. Also within 1st Space Brigade, I've got, uh, I've got the 2nd Space Battalion, which is an Army Reserve unit. And I've got the 117th Space Support Battalion, which is a Colorado National Guard unit. And again, I have, I have just great brigade commanders who it doesn't really matter if you're a reservist, active component, or National Guard, uh, they make sure that they meet the mission 24-7 and do a great job doing it. In uh, Among your the elements of your commander's intent, you wrote, it, I will say it as plainly as possible, it's my intent that we win. What does winning look like in the context of your mission, General? Yes, you've heard the, the Chief of Staff of the Army, General McConville, talk, talk about winning matters. And when we come to the space mission, what I like to tell my team is that winning matters, winning first in space really matters. We see our adversaries out there, they're contesting us in space. With the stand-up of Space Command and me as the Army Service Component supporting Space Command, we know that our warfighting readiness is key to winning and making sure that we stay ahead of our adversaries. What do you need from the soldiers that you have under your command now or for the soldiers that you want to bring into your command in order to be able to do that? What are the, the things that you'll need those soldiers to be able to do in 2022 and 2025 to be able to continue that idea of winning, General? Yeah, one of the great aspects that we have within Space Command and with, within, uh, within our space mission is we have officers that come in, they're called uh, functional Area 40s or FA-40s. And those officers, they're commissioned, when they come into the Army, they might be commissioned as infantry or in the armor or aviation or field artillery or signal, you name it, any one of a number of the Army branches. They get commissioned, they'll do first couple of assignments in that particular branch. And then they will come over into their FA-40, into their uh, space professional job, but they'll bring with them that experience they have of serving in that particular branch in the Army. They might have a couple of deployments under their belt. And then they bring that operational experience with them into space. And what I really enjoy with our FA-40s and what we see from captain up to the highest ranks is our space professionals in the Army are natural integrators. They're able to bring the different effects, commander's intent, bring it all in one package uh, to be able to provide that that uh, commander with uh, with the requisite capabilities that he or she needs to win on the battlefield. General Carbler, I you mentioned the stand-up of Space Command, and that's where I want to pick up the conversation. When we come back, part two of my conversation with Lieutenant General Daniel Carbler when Government Matters continues.
Welcome back. The United States Space Force is moving personnel into its billets all across the force. Lieutenant General Daniel Karbler is commanding general of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command. General Karbler, thanks for continuing our conversation. Um, you mentioned in the first part of our conversation that stand-up. What does that mean for your command? Is it changing the mission now that we have, again, a U.S. Space Command transitioning into a Space Force? Sure. So what we saw a couple of weeks ago, we we formalized uh, Space and Missile Defense Command being the Army Service Component Command to United States Space Command. We, we had always been supporting Space Command in that role, but when when the with the uh, stand up of Space Command, it allowed us to uh, formalize our relationship, our command relationship with that command. What what it means to us is we really will just continue as we have been doing in our support. Uh, we support them in different exercises uh, that we conduct throughout the year, but also I provide operational forces to a, to a U.S. Space Command. So I provide them with the Satellite Operations Brigade as well as forces from First Space Brigade. And, and, and you know, even before the formal standup of Space Command, when we had these capabilities resident under Strategic Command, we were providing uh, these capabilities, uh, these Army Space capabilities to that command. Um, one of the one of the unique uh, pieces of this is uh, now we have Army four-star General Jim Dickinson, uh, one of my, my predecessor here at Space and Missile Defense Command, uh, when he took over uh, Space Command a couple weeks ago. In his change of command speech, pretty important words that he talked about about establishing the warfighting culture within Space Command, and to to an Army soldier, those are those words ring real true to to our heart in terms of being able to provide warfighting capability and warfighting readiness to Space Command, again, through uh, our Satellite Operations Brigade, as well as our first Space Brigade capabilities. Is the parallel here, General, that there are, for example, aviation capabilities in all the other branches, uh, but the Air Force is a war is a, a, an aviator, a, a, a force of aviators? Is that the same idea that we should uh, look for moving forward when it comes to space? So yes, space expertise is, is absolutely critical. And again, as I explained a little bit earlier, those FA-40s with that operational experience that they bring to the Army as, as well as in their space expertise, being able to, uh, to meet General Dickinson's uh, intent to establish a warfighting culture. And I think the Army leads the, leads the way in that. But there's also other capabilities that are important to provide to U.S. Space Command, uh, communications capabilities, and especially uh, intelligence capabilities uh, making sure that we're taking a look at the, the space aspect of that, but knowing that it's, it's not just always just space, but we have other capabilities within the Army that we can provide to Space Command. Like I said, intel and communications are uh, two of them that come to mind. A number of guests on the program over the last several months, and, and maybe it's even a year, year and a half now, General, have talked about the importance of joint all-domain command and control and the role that that will play in fighting wars in the future. What's your piece of that, General? Yeah, Space and Missile Defense Command, really, I talk about we're at the integration nexus for three critical strategic missions. So I'm responsible to U.S. Strategic Command, I'm responsible to U.S. Space Command, and I'm also responsible for supporting Northern Command. Um, strategic Command for strategic deterrence, Space Command for those space missions that we just talked about, and then Northern Command for the Homeland Missile Defense Mission. 
SMDC stands at that integration nexus. I tell our team that we're, we're really occupying key terrain there. So the integration, the piece of integration to that is from the planning, the command and control and execution, our staff brings a, a great level of expertise that we can provide to those three different combatant commanders. We just have a couple of minutes left, General. How has COVID affected you, the readiness of your force? What, what have you seen impact-wise uh, across the men and women that you command, sir? I could not be prouder of the soldiers who have this 24-7 mission, global uh, capabilities that we provide. Uh, I, tell, I tell our soldiers that we are the first line of defense and we are the last line of defense. So I have soldiers that do uh, early, uh, early warning against missile attacks. They have to be ready 24 seven. I have soldiers that are responsible to make sure that we provide satellite communications 24 seven. And then we have the 100th GMD soldiers in Colorado, Alaska, and California, who've gotta be ready 24 seven to counter any adversary intercontinental ballistic missile attacks into, into uh, North America. During COVID, these soldiers, these leaders took the utmost measures to make sure that readiness stayed at the forefront. These are very, very small crews. They're globally dispersed, but yet they maintained their health, they maintained their safety so that they can maintain their missions. As we say, we have to protect ourselves so that, our, so that we have to protect ourselves so that we can then protect the nation. And the American public should be very proud of the job that the soldiers of Space and Missile Defense Command have done to ensure just that. General Karbler, thanks very much for your time today. It's great to talk to you, sir. Thanks, Francis. Have a great day. Coming up, the next big factor holding back the Pentagon's audit. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the changes that have to happen and what it'll take to make them. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Pentagon needs to improve the quality of its property record data to get to a clean audit. The Government Accountability Office finds a department-wide strategy to address real property control issues would help. Kristen Kosiolik is director at the Government Accountability Office. Kristen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What specifically were you supposed to look at regarding the way that the Pentagon keeps track of its real property? Hi, Francis. Thanks for having me. We did this audit as part of our role as the group auditor for the consolidated financial statements of the federal government. And so as part of that, we perform more oversight of the financial audits that are done at the Department of Defense. And in this particular audit, we were focused on looking at the real property, like you mentioned. And what that entails is the land, the building, and the structures that the department maintains. And what we found is that the department could really benefit from continuing to address the underlying internal control issues that are being identified by the inspector general, as well as the other independent, independent public accountants that are performing the financial audits. Um, and 
to do that, continuing those efforts, and like you mentioned, really doing it in a department-wide strategy as opposed to having each of the individual services and components do things on their own. You use a phrase here, Kristen, that I've learned over the years is a red flag, basically, in a GAO uh, work, and that is a leading practice that the Pentagon is not following here. And in this case, a leading practice for enterprise-wide real property management is this comprehensive department-wide strategy. Are there strategies in parts of the department that are not in use all over the place, or is there not a strategy at all anywhere in the department for uh, for collecting this real estate data? What we found is that there, there are services and components that are putting things into place to address these issues. But exactly what you mentioned, there's not a department-wide strategy that's going to help them bring it all together and, and leverage efficiencies that could be had. Certainly, as you noted and mentioned, leading practices, Certainly, GAO is not the only organization that has pointed this out. The Inspector General has emphasized the importance of a department-wide strategy. Um, the Defense Business Board has mentioned that as well. And even the department itself, the management there, has, has mentioned that a department-wide strategy really would help them to leverage efficiencies and bring things together at the end. Ultimately, they are required to have the consolidated financial statement audit at the department-wide level. And so as much as we can do to be consistent among the services and the components will really help them do that without having to go through a lot of adjustments and things at the end to the extent that the different folks are doing it inconsistently. I'm sure the reason that you want the department to have a strategy is not just so they have a strategy. What are they missing out on by not having a strategy and by not getting this data collated, collected, curated in a way that's beneficial to the department? Right, exactly. That's a great point. And not having a strategy for the sake of a strategy. What having good real property data will help them do is not only be able to auditable financial statements, which is certainly important and a goal of the department. But having that data available and reliable on an ongoing basis will help department management be able to make decisions throughout the course of transactions as property is added, as property is disposed. To the extent that those types of transactions can be recorded accurately, in the record as they occur, so that management has that information available if they are making decisions about needs for new assets or the need to dispose of assets, they have reliable data to do that. They'd also be able to better plan for maintenance costs. For example, if they're having data in their record that's indicating they have assets that really no longer exist, you know, they don't want to be planning and budgeting for maintenance costs for those assets, for example. So having a strategy, a department-wide strategy that will help them have this accurate information on an ongoing basis really help the department overall 
get a good picture of what they have, what they need, and be able to make good decisions. Kristen, you mentioned that there are some departments, some places in the military that are doing this. Would it be as simple as taking one of those examples and scaling it across the entire department? Or is, is that maybe not, is it not a one-size-fits-all thing necessarily? In some ways, I think they can take what they've learned at certain agencies and, and apply that across the board. Certainly, we hear that the various components and services have things that uni are unique about them, but there's also a lot of similarities. And so to the extent they can leverage what is similar and be able to leverage that and gain some efficiencies so that each organization is not having to do it on their own, I think would definitely help. One example where we found that is in the um, existence and completeness verifications that the um, various components and services undertook in 2019 and 2020 in response to the audit priorities coming out of the uh, 2018 audit. And, and in that case, there was a department-wide directive that required all the different organizations to do a complete existence and completeness verification and really looking to make sure if they had property recorded in the records, did it really exist? And conversely to that, if they had property that existed, making sure that it was in the records. And we actually went out and looked at um, four different installations and found that they were all doing something, but they were all doing things a little bit differently. And to the extent that they could have leveraged from each other or had a consistent policy that they were following, it would have resulted in better comparable re results across the government and truly um, across the department rather, and really help them to get to the goal of having a real property baseline department-wide, as opposed to having things a little bit different in each uh, service and component. Kristen, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your insight today. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.